Good morning. If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in your pew Bible, it's uh, page 968, if you're using the Bible in the pew in front of you. And please stand for the reading of God's word. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. Thank you, Brett. So... Back in 2012, I was at a conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and I heard a pastor named David Platt preach a really powerful sermon on the relationship between God's sovereignty and death-defying missions. In his sermon, showing what it looks like for a Christian to be prepared to die for the sake of the gospel, he told the story of a pastor named Joseph Son. Son lived in Romania when it was under communist rule, <clears throat> and as a faithful Christian minister, he was arrested, he was imprisoned, he was interrogated, he was beaten, and ultimately he was exiled because 
he just wouldn't stop telling people about Jesus. And at one point, he was offered a way out by the secret police. Take a secular job and give up the proclamation of the gospel, or it was implied, face the consequences. And here's what he said. I told the man, now I am ready to die. You said you were going to finish me as a preacher. I asked my God, and he wants me to continue to be a preacher. Now I have to make one of you two angry, and I decided it's better to make you angry than to make God angry. Yeah, amen to that. On another occasion, uh, Son had uh, this exchange with an interrogator. He said, you should know your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Now here's how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are on tape all over the country. When you shoot me or crush me, whichever way you choose, you only sprinkle my sermons with my blood. Everybody who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again. This man died for what he preached. Sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder after you kill me and because you kill me. In fact, I will conquer this country for God because you killed me. Go on and do it. Dying for the Lord is not an accident. It's not a tragedy. It's part of the job. It's part of the ministry. And it's the greatest way of preaching. So the title of our sermon this morning is The Church Militant. If you've never heard that term, it's a theological phrase that simply refers to all Christians on the planet, and it has in mind the fact that as we seek to stay faithful to Jesus, as we seek to become more like Him, and as we seek to bring Him glory, we are all using spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual battle against uh, sin and the devil. So what would you say if I told you that Joseph's son is a wonderful example of that, of the church militant. If you didn't know the definition of the phrase, or maybe even now that you do, that may sound like an odd statement. Like, how could a man who suffered, who was beaten, who was ultimately exiled, how could a guy who looked that weak be an exemplar of a term that sounds so powerful? The Apostle Paul doesn't use the phrase church militant in his letters, but I think this very issue is at the heart of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Remember the setting of this letter. Paul planted the church in Corinth, and about five or so years later, false apostles, these people who prided themselves in their eloquence, lofty speech, wisdom, and accomplishments, rolled into town and they questioned Paul's apostleship, his apostolic authority. They pointed to things like his suffering, his weakness, and what they perceived as a lack of boldness to say that he wasn't a true apostle. The Corinthians bought into that lie, and they rejected Paul. But by the time of 2 Corinthians, the majority of them had repented, but some of them were still holding out. In 2 Corinthians 10, which we're going to look at this morning, Paul specifically addresses that group, that unrepentant minority in Corinth. And he defends his ministry, and he begs these individuals who are still rejecting him to turn away from the false apostles and to turn back to him as their apostle in Christ. And as he makes this appeal, I think he provides us with two characteristics that must define our ministry as Christians 
as the church militant here in Wilmington and across the globe. One, cruciform warfare, or warfare in the shape of the cross of Christ. And two, cruciform boasting, boasting in the shape of the cross of Christ. So let's dive into the text, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 11, and look at that first point, cruciform warfare. So right off the bat, in verses 1 and 2, Paul makes his purpose clear, not just for chapter 10, but really for the rest of the letter. He doesn't want to have to discipline the Corinthians when he returns to Corinth. And so he pleads with them to change course. So he says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walk according, walking according to the flesh. Now, when Paul says there, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, he's citing an accusation these false apostles made against him. It's similar to what he says right here in verse 10. For they, they being those false apostles, say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. These charges probably stem from Paul's response to the Corinthians when they initially turned against him. So do you remember that moment? Uh, we've been uh, working through Paul's history with the Corinthian church as we've been working through this letter. And what I think is in view here is um, what happened once Paul got word that the false apostles were in town and the Corinthians were buying into their teaching. So remember that when Paul heard about this, he went to Corinth to address the problem. He was in Ephesus at the time. And unfortunately, that visit did not go well. The Corinthians rejected him and they refused to stand with him as their apostle in the Lord. But instead of having it out with them right then and there, Paul did something that seems a little surprising at first. He just left. He retreated back to Ephesus and he wrote the Corinthians a tearful but severe letter urging them to repent and remember, thankfully, most of them had done so by this time. Now, evidently, based on verses 1 and 10, the false apostles latched on to Paul's actions, and they tried to turn them against him. You can almost hear their critique. Paul is weak. He's cowardly. He's deceitful. He's not willing to say hard things to your face, yet he'll write you these weighty, strong, frightening letters from a safe distance? Would a real apostle operate like that? No. Paul's walking according to the flesh, not the spirit. If he were the real deal, like us, he would be winsome, persuasive, strong, not just from far away, but when present. So the question is, do they have a point in the accusations that they're making? Are they rightly assessing Paul? No. They are blind. They're blind to what Paul describes in verse 3. They don't see that while, yes, he walks in the flesh, meaning 
He's a human being living on planet Earth. He's not waging war according to the flesh. He's not using human means like empty rhetoric, flattery, prideful boasting, scare tactics to try to accomplish his purposes. No, as he says in verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. A stronghold was like a fortress uh, that people under attack would take shelter in in order to make a defense. And here, Paul's using that terminology to refer to those defenses that people put up in their minds that are contrary to Christ, that justify their rejection of Jesus, that keep God at arm's length. And so he continues in verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So the picture that he's painting here is uh, a, a militant one. It's of an army not just destroying the stronghold in which enemies reside, but taking those enemies and changing their allegiance. What once rebelled against Jesus is made to obey him. I read a commentary this week where one guy compares that to like, capture the flag. I don't know if you've ever, ever played capture the flag, but his version was if you get, like, everybody has these armbands on, and if you get tagged, you have to switch your armband to the other team. So as you're trying to, gra to grab the other team's flag, if they get you, then you have to put on their team's armband. So that's what he's comparing this to. It's like on Wednesday, I served in Awana, and the kids played sharks and minnows. I don't know if you've played that one either, but in sharks and minnows, the sharks get in the middle of the gym, and the minnows try to get across. But what happens is if the, shark, if the sharks tag one of the minnows, now the minnows are on the sharks team. And so the sharks team, over time, gets bigger and bigger and bigger while the minnows are still trying to get across. So this is essentially what's happening, what Paul's describing in this verse in 2 Corinthians 10. Those people who were once enemies of Christ are brought under his allegiance, are brought under his rule. Do you see how Paul's accomplishing that in his ministry to the Corinthians? The false apostles and those rejecting Paul don't see it, but Paul is working to demolish the Corinthians' unbelief and rebellion, not just against him, but against Jesus. Paul's just not using the weapons they think he would. So when Paul suffers in his ministry, when Paul determines to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified, they see weakness. They see death. They see a lack of eloquent wisdom. But they miss the fact that Paul's suffering and the simple proclamation of the gospel have divine power behind them. When Paul left Corinth, when he wrote them this severe, tearful letter, they see weakness. They see cowardice, a lack of boldness. But they miss the fact that Paul's weapons are love, humility, and mercy. Paul didn't retreat back to Ephesus because he was afraid. He didn't go back because he was duplicitous. No, he went back to Ephesus because he deeply loved the Corinthians and he wanted to call them to repentance and actually give them a chance to do so. And even now in this letter, 
they may again see in Paul this deficient lack of boldness. But if so, what they're going to miss is what Paul says in verse 1, that he is appealing to them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Those are what Paul's weapons look like. And here, the meekness and gentleness of Christ, those two terms are coming together to emphasize Jesus' humility, his slowness to anger, his mercy. Remember, Christ came to earth in humility to save his people from their sins. He did what they, what we are unable to do in our own strength. Christ lived a perfect, sinless life of obedience to God. And in his ministry, he performed amazing miracles. He cured people of sickness. He cured those who were afflicted with demons. He called people to repent of their sins and follow him. And everybody did so, and they all lived happily ever after, right? No, Jesus faced rejection of the worst sort. He was God in the flesh, full of grace and love, mercy and truth, yet he was despised and rejected. They esteemed him not. Ultimately, he was crucified, executed on a Roman cross like a common criminal. And as he hung there, people cast lots to divide his clothes. And the rulers and the soldiers standing there mocked him, saying things like, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God. How did Jesus respond to that? Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is meekness. That is gentleness. And that is what the Apostle Paul is not just modeling for the Corinthians as he begs them to change course and turn back to him, but this is what Paul is extending to them. Paul is extending to the Corinthians the very Jesus who embodies meekness and gentleness. I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's why Paul's so insistent that the Corinthians turn away from these apostles and embrace him. We're not reading in 2 Corinthians 10 about this insecure man who feels slighted and he's throwing his weight around in order to save his own skin, in order to save his reputation. Now we're witnessing an apostle who is pleading with his people to turn from their rebellion because he knows that in rejecting him, they are rejecting Jesus too. Look at verse 7 of this chapter. Paul says, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. These false teachers may claim that they are Christ's servants. Paul's actually going to debunk that in chapter 11. Paul tells the Corinthians to look, to see what is obvious, what's plain, what's right in front of them. The Lord gave Paul his apostolic authority. They're proof of that. The very fact that they exist of a church is proof of that. Paul's the one who took the gospel to them in the first place. 
Paul's called by the Lord. He's called as an apostle for the purpose of building them up, not for destroying them. That statement comes from Jeremiah 1.10, where God tells the prophet Jeremiah, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Like Jeremiah, Paul's called by the Lord. But unlike Jeremiah's ministry, Paul's is a new covenant ministry that builds up, that has power to save. And again, the Corinthian church is a testimony to this since it's through the ministry of Paul that they know Christ in the first place. And so Paul knows that if this unrepentant minority in Corinth rejects him as a true apostle, if they continue to follow these charlatans, that means that they're not just rejecting him, they're rejecting Jesus too, and Paul loves them too much to stand idly by and let that happen. And so he is launching a divinely empowered war on their behalf, and he's using the spiritual weapons that God provides. Paul wants to destroy the barriers of resistance to the gospel in their minds for the purpose of building them up. But he wants the Corinthians to know the time for mercy and restraint is running out. The false apostles accuse Paul of a lack of boldness face-to-face, but ironically, boldness is exactly what they're going to get when Paul comes back to Corinth. He says in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Again in verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And again in verse 11, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. This reflects Jesus' ministry too, doesn't it? Christ didn't come to earth on a mission of judgment and wrath. He came to save his people from their sins. John sums it up this way in chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 of his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But there is a day coming when the time for repentance and mercy runs out. When Christ returns, he is coming back like a lion, and he will execute judgment on everyone who has failed to embrace him as their Savior and King. And when God tells us that, when we read that in Scripture, when we see that reflected in passages like 2 Corinthians 10, that is not harsh that is not unkind. We may, temp- we may be tempted to think that it's so, but what it is is a loving, merciful warning. It's calling us to bow the knee to King Jesus now before we are forced to bow the knee to King Jesus then. So if you're with us here this morning, and if you're not a Christian, let me, like Paul does with the Corinthians, plead with you. Let me beg you 
Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead. And because of what he accomplished, the promise for you and for me is that if we turn away from our sins and trust him, he'll save us. He will forgive you of your sins. He will make you clean. He'll make you new. He'll give you eternal life. But when he comes back, time's up. So let today be the day of salvation. Don't wait. Run to Jesus and embrace him as your Savior King. He is worth every sacrifice. And if you're here today, and if you are a Christian, let's be sure that we wage war like Paul does in the shape of the cross. He doesn't specify the weapons that he uses in this text, but I think they're present. I think they're clear. Humility, patience, mercy, love, the clear proclamation of Christ crucified and risen, and Christ-like suffering on behalf of others for the sake of the gospel. Perhaps we could add to this uh, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, the weapons that are listed there, the truth of the gospel, righteousness, readiness given by the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the Bible, prayer. That's what our arsenal is composed of. And those weapons while they may look weak and ineffective to those on the outside, have divine power behind them. They have divine power to tear down every wall that is raised up in opposition to Jesus. Do you believe it? Do we believe it? Do our lives reflect the fact that we believe it? It can be tempting to use or trust in human means to elicit a positive response of obedience to Jesus. I think we all can be prone to this in one way or another at times. Just think about it in regard to evangelism. I think there are a lot of ways that we can go astray here. So speaking winsomely, speaking clearly is important, but we can trust too much in our ability to do so, can't we? Believing that whether someone accepts or rejects Jesus comes down to how eloquently we put the message. We can also water down the gospel, perhaps by softening the call for repentance in order to make the message just a little bit more attractive. We can use scare tactics, playing on people's fear of punishment in order not to get them to run to God so that they have God, but in order to get them to pray a prayer of repentance just in order to avoid hell. We can also trust in our knowledge and our ability to argue well, our, our ability to systematically break down somebody's objections and prove them wrong. Now, don't get me wrong, apologetics, being able to defend the faith is crucial. It's vitally important in the faith. But if we are resting our hope and our ability to argue, we have gone astray. D.A. Carson says it like this. Argue a skeptic into a corner, and you will not take his mind captive for Christ, but pray for him. Proclaim the gospel to him. Live out the gospel of peace 
Walk righteously by faith until he senses your ultimate allegiance and citizenship are vastly different from his own, and you may discover that the power of the truth, the convincing and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and the glories of Christ Jesus shatter his reasons and demolish his arguments until you take captive his mind and heart to make them obedient to Christ. The result will be a life transformed. So the point is this. We have divinely empowered weapons at our disposal. So let's trust the Lord and let's use them. That doesn't just apply broadly to evangelism. That applies to all of us, whether you're a parent, a husband, a, a wife, a single person, a student, a child. Let's embrace the weapons that God has used in our relationships and trust the Lord with the results. And let's be sure, too, to apply this warfare mentality not just to those on the outside, but internally. I read a helpful article this week by John Piper on this, and he says that the way to do this essentially is to come to the Scriptures with a posture of submission, ready to accept the Holy Spirit's breakdown of any strongholds that we have in our own minds. So anything, any argument, any lofty opinion, any thought, anything in our minds that is a barrier to our growth in Christ-likeness, that is contrary to God's Word, must always be on the chopping block when we sit underneath the Scriptures. That's what it looks like for us to embody this internally. That's what cruciform warfare looks like on the inside and on the outside. It's not what the world may expect, but it's the means that God has sovereignly designed to save sinners and to change us day by day more and more into the image of Jesus. Paul wants the Corinthians to see that. He wants the Corinthians to embrace that. He wants the Corinthians to turn and embrace him because turning and embracing him is turning and embracing Christ. But he doesn't stop there. There's another way that his ministry looks a lot different from what the false apostles expect. And that brings us to the latter half of this chapter, verses 12 to 18 in our second point, cruciform boasting. So look with me there at verse 12. Paul says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Here Paul is pointing out a key pivotal difference between his ministry and the false teachers this minority in Corinth are still following. The false teachers commend themselves. It's like they're saying, just trust us. We're the people that you should be following. There's no objective measuring stick they're using to determine the legitimacy of their work. Instead, they're comparing themselves to each other. Do you see how foolish that is? Like one commentator, he puts it like this. This is so good. He says, if three small people stand side by side, they can convince themselves that they are all really quite tall. 
until a really tall person comes into the room. Or again, I might imagine myself, I might imagine to myself that I'm really seven feet tall. But if there's a rule on the wall that I can measure myself by, an objective standard marked out in feet and inches, I will soon learn my mistake. Paul's not going to play the game that these false apostles are playing. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to commend himself. He doesn't have to compare himself to anyone else. The Lord Jesus called Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and Paul knew it. Paul simply had to stay faithful to the mission that Christ gave him. And that mission, Paul wants to be clear, involved taking the gospel to the Corinthian church. So he says in verses 13 to 16, But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel on lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Do you see what he's getting at here? So this unrepentant minority in Corinth is missing. They're forgetting that Paul's the one who brought the gospel to them. So they are trading the apostle who actually ministered Jesus to them for fake, cheap substitutes who commend themselves, put them, or puff themselves up with these faulty comparisons, and boast in work that's actually done by other people, in this case, Paul. Paul isn't opposed to boasting, but it definitely doesn't look like that. The false apostles boast in their labors for selfish gain, but Paul boasts in the Lord and in what God has accomplished through him, not so that he gets the credit, but in order that God be praised. As he says in verse 17, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's a reference to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. God says there in, in that text, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So listen to Scott Haifman. Uh, he's a commentator. Listen to him unpack this. He says, this is the point of Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. There Jeremiah calls the wise, the strong, and the rich not to boast in their own distinctives, but in the God who is known by the mercy, judgment, and righteousness he exercises on earth, since these are the things in which he delights. The prophet's criticism of the wise, the strong, and the rich is not that they are wise, strong, and rich per se, but that they act as if their wisdom, strength, and wealth came from them. Moreover, they esteem these things of more value than God's mercy, justice, and righteousness. Jeremiah's point is that God is the sole origin of humanity's distinctives and that his actions alone are of ultimate value. 
Following Jeremiah's admonition in 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul boasts in the saving activity of Christ as the expression of God's mercy, justice, and righteousness. The issue is not whether one boasts or not. We all do. But whether the object of our boast is God. The call to boast from Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 is a summons to acknowledge God for his gracious acts and provisions. So, why does Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 show up in 2 Corinthians 10? The false apostles are making the worst sort of boast. They boast in their wisdom and their accomplishments, while Paul boasts and what God has accomplished through him. They boast in order to receive praise, while Paul boasts in order to direct praise to God. This text isn't opposed to boasting. I think sometimes we might bristle at the thought that we're called to boast, but in actuality, we're all hardwired boasters, aren't we? We boast all the time. We praise that which we love. And this text, what this text is calling us to is a different sort of boast. It's calling us to boast with a heart that wants to see God praised, that wants to see others praise God because of what God has done for us. That's the kind of boasting that Paul's commending That's the kind of boasting that honors the Lord. It's not a boasting that wants to see me praised. It's a boast that wants to see God praised. Paul makes this clear in another text, I think. It's Romans 15, 14 to 21. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read this to you because it is very similar to what we're reading here in 2 Corinthians 10. And Paul makes clear Uh, He makes a clear point about his boast in that text. Listen to him there. He says, this is Romans 15, 14 to 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And catch this. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." What's happening in Romans 15 is really similar to what's happening in 2 Corinthians 10. Paul is explaining his commission from the Lord. He is an apostle to the Gentiles. And he's saying that he does have grounds to boast in what God has accomplished through him. But he's not doing it in order to receive the praise. He's doing it in order that praise be directed to God. 
The gospel is going forth to all nations through Paul, through powerful signs and wonders. But unlike these false apostles, Paul isn't receiving the accolades. Paul is coming to them in weakness and humility and suffering, preaching a gospel that has power to change all the while directing people toward the God he serves. That's so much different than what these false apostles are doing and the Corinthians and we have to see it. So I think we can apply this text in two similar ways this morning. One, if we're in Christ, we don't have to play the game of comparisons. The false teachers compare themselves to one another in order to build themselves up, in order to try to bring some legitimacy to their work. We don't have to do that, Bethel. If we are in Christ, we have all the commendation that we need. It's the one that God approves who is commended. And if you are trusting in Jesus, you are approved by the Lord. And so you don't have to fight tooth and nail and compare yourself to other people in order to puff yourself up. We can instead look and see what Jesus has done for us, that our identity is in him, that we are righteous in Christ, that we have the well done in Jesus, and we can work in the strength that God, God, that God supplies us. We don't have to play that game. And two, we can be big boasters in the Lord. We have every reason to do so, Right? This is, this is a summons to proclaim Psalm 126.3. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Isn't that what we're called to do here in our city? Like Wilmington. Brett mentioned this earlier in his prayer. Murder Town, USA. Let me tell you what God's done for me. God has shown me mercy. God has shown me grace. God has changed me from the inside out. God continues to work through me, not because of anything within me, but because of the power of the Spirit working in and through me. God be praised. That's the work that we're called to do, not to commend ourselves, not to puff ourselves up, not so that we receive the praise, but so that we see God praised, so that we see our city, Wilmington, praise the God we love this is what we're trying to do across the globe through the missionaries we support. We want to see people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation praise God, worship Him, fall and bow down before King Jesus. He's good. He is worth all the praise. And so how dare we do anything that, that deflects it toward us? We don't need to do that. Let's make sure that it goes toward the Lord. As Paul says, verse 18, it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Did you know that the term church militant has a sister term? Church triumphant. Church triumphant refers to all the saints who have gone on to glory. All the saints who have triumphed over this life and who are now with the Lord. Bethel, 
That is our certain future too. So we can hold fast to the promise that Paul gives in Romans 16, 17 to 20. Again, notice how similar this is to the situation that he's addressing in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's going to compare these false apostles to Satan, to servants of the devil in chapter 11. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We now are the church militant. We will one day in Christ be the church triumphant. While we wait, let's celebrate what God has done for us. He's done great things. And let's wage war, wage a cruciform, cross-shaped war. Let's boast, be big boasters, cross-shaped boasters, all for the glory of our great Savior and King. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. You have done great things for us. Lord, please cause us to rejoice in our maker and be glad in our king. Let our joy be on full display for those in our spheres of influence to see. Our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, this city, not so that we receive the praise but so, Father, that you receive the praise, that Jesus receives the praise. Please, God, work through us by the power of the Holy Spirit to make this more and more true. Help us, Lord, in the strength that you supply to wage this spiritual war with the spiritual weapons that you give us. Help us, Father, to be big boasters, not for our sake, but for Jesus' sake, for the praise of his glorious name. Amen.